Good morning, everyone. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be with you. Um, we are, are less than four weeks out from Easter. Uh, when we close out our almost 40-week journey through the life of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Uh, so in the book of Mark, we have only two chapters to go. Jesus' death is right around the corner, the resurrection right after that. And for the last 10 weeks, we've been moving inexorably toward that, toward the, toward the conclusion of the story. And in 2023, so far, everything we have studied and learned and discussed about Jesus and his story are moving us toward that, preparing us for that. And what we've called this third part of our series in Mark's Gospel is how to really live. How to really live. It feels like the question behind other questions, doesn't it? How do I deal with this disappointment, this pain, this unmet expectation in light of my faith that tells me about hope and joy and all of the other stuff that Jesus promises? That's a question about how to really live. What do I do with the suffering and the chaos in the world, let alone in my workplace or my school or my family or my friends' lives or even in the turmoil of my own head and heart and my own thoughts and emotions and the traumas and triggers in our own bodies? That's a question about how to really live. How am I going to make it through this situation? Will God provide fill-in-the-blank money or the help or a way? And what do I do in the meantime? That's a question about how to really live. How to really live is what lies beneath many of the other questions we find ourselves asking. We learn how to really live from Jesus, one who showed us what God is like and what we are to be like as those made in God's image. It's as if we didn't quite get it when, when God said we're made in the image of God, Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible, uh, and we didn't understand what that meant both for ourselves and for everyone around us, for everyone we meet and see and care about and despise. And so Jesus had to show up and show us. We learn how to really live from all of Jesus' life. And yet there is something particularly focusing about the moments leading up to a significant event. Right? What something means to us is shown by how we prepare for it. A big trip you'd been saving up for. A big occasion you'd been looking forward to, a big move, a big game, a big day, a, a wedding, a birth, a graduation, a return home, a reunion, finally paying off a debt or a loan, celebrating a milestone in recovery. Over these, these last couple of months, we've seen how Jesus prepared himself and his followers for what would be the most consequential events in all of human history, his death and resurrection. Since January, we've heard how he entered Jerusalem, staged a public demonstration against religious exclusion and economic exploitation, how he called out the spiritual abuse perpetrated by religious leaders, how he named the greatest commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, how he told his disciples to keep watch, to stay faithful in the coming times of trial. Last week, Pastor Matthew told us the story of the woman who anointed Jesus with perfume, a costly gift, a, a sacrificial gift, and Jesus said of her, she is preparing me for my burial. She's preparing me. In today's passage from Mark 14, Jesus and his disciples are preparing for a particularly important event. Verse 12, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the disciples said to Jesus, 
Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? Watson explained the festival of unleavened bread and the Passover last week, back-to-back festivals that commemorated the people of Israel's ancient liberation from slavery in Egypt. There were two very, there were very specific rites and routines involved in celebrating the Passover, and two that I want to highlight are, one, it had to be celebrated in Jerusalem, and two, it was typically celebrated with one's family. It had to be celebrated in Jerusalem, and it was typically celebrated with one's family. So with my family, there were certain rites and routines around worship as well. I, I grew up uh, in Hong Kong, going to church with my parents from as early as I could remember. Uh, every Sunday morning, whether I wanted to or not, whether I felt like it or not, uh, we would wake up, we would get dressed, we'd eat breakfast. Uh, sometimes I would, get, I would be ready before they were, and I would just have to wait. I knew that watching TV on Sunday morning, that's not a thing. You don't know. You've got to find some other way to pass the time. We'd leave home around 7.40 a.m., walk down the hill from our apartment building to the bus stop, catch the number 85 or 85B bus around 7.55, and the bus would take us through the Lion Rock Tunnel and drop us off pretty much right outside the church building, about 8.15. Now, the early service began at 8.30. And sometimes I or my parents would help to greet or usher, you know, hand out bulletins and such. My mom would start chatting to whoever was there, because that's just who my mom is. My dad would always go straight into the sanctuary and sit quietly in prayer for a few minutes. Every week. I remember it so vividly. I, I, I was not to disturb him during those few minutes. And one time I asked him about it. He told me it was because he wanted to prepare himself for worship. To separate himself from whatever had happened that morning. Running late or didn't sleep well, maybe some attitude from his youngest son. It couldn't have been me. (laughs) But to become present to God. To prepare for worship. Because he knew that worship was about connecting with God, bringing one's entire self before God turning one's attention to God. And then after a few moments of stillness and prayer, he would go about whatever duties he had volunteered for that day. I think my dad was one of the most consistent greeters at church, which is so wild because my dad is also one of the most introverted people I have ever known, serving on what we would call the hospitality team. You know, talk about not leaning into your strengths, right? But he did it because there was a need. Because he also knew that worship was not just about him connecting with God. It is also about helping others connect with God. About cultivating a space for others to bring themselves before God. About doing whatever needs to be done so that others can turn their attention to God. I promise this is not a passive-aggressive attempt to get you to volunteer for a ministry team. We are, we are quite direct when we ask you to volunteer for ministry teams, as, as Tim, Tim did so, so wonderfully earlier. We do hope that if you call Christ City home, you'll see this as a place you want to contribute to, a place where you and those you know and love encounter Jesus and experience the work of the Holy Spirit and see the flourishing of God's kingdom outside of these walls and outside of Sunday morning as well. We hope you see this as a worthy place to invest your time and your energy and your resources. 
that you come to see yourself as a member of a body with a part to play rather than a member of a club choosing to stand apart from others. I hope that Christ City is a community where you connect with God and where you help others connect with God too. But all of that is a side point to inviting you to consider how you prepare. In general, as well as for a worship, survey, worship service or a, a liturgical gathering, even if it's just for a moment, to catch your breath. If you have a young child or two, I know it's hard, maybe ask your partner or a friend if they wouldn't mind watching them just for, just for a couple minutes so you can center down. You can bring yourself and your awareness into the present moment. And in fact, let me invite us to do that right now. Let's sit up, let's sit comfortably. You can close your eyes if you would like to or focus on a spot in front of you with a gentle focus. And take some deep breaths. In and out. Remembering that God is nearer to us than the breath that we breathe, the air that is going in through our noses and into our lungs. Breathing in, breathing out, and bringing our awareness to God. Let's come back together. When you're ready, you can open your eyes. It's just a simple prayer practice, a simple breath prayer when you're anxious or upset or before a big occasion or even right when you wake up or right before you go to sleep, becoming present and turning your awareness back to God, resetting, recentering. How do you prepare? Jesus and the disciples are preparing for the Passover, which is, as I said earlier, it had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. So the city was packed with thousands of pilgrims looking for a place to stay and to celebrate with family. Jesus, he sends two disciples ahead of him with very specific instructions about who they are to meet and where. And it says in verse 16, the disciples left. They came into the city. They found everything just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. Everything is just as he told them. In the same way, a few chapters earlier, everything was just as, this, as Jesus told his disciples when they were preparing the way for his entry into Jerusalem. Everything was just as he told them. Now, there are a couple of ways this has tended to be understood. If, for those who lean more into charismatic or Pentecostal or supernatural uh, interpretations, Jesus had tremendous prophetic foreknowledge and spiritual insight, and he knew what was set up for him. And this is how we know that God was orchestrating things because everything was just as Jesus had told them. For those who lean in a more cerebral manner or are less inclined to believe the supernatural, uh, Jesus prepared so meticulously and so brilliantly that his disciples didn't even know the plans that he had made. A secret meeting, a room already prepared, already ready. I like to think it could have been both. Both an exercise in waking, making wise plans and preparations and divine insight into who and where and how, perhaps that led to those plans and preparations. Both strike me as how, how God works, with and without us. Sometimes with us and sometimes in spite of us. But always for us. And always with us. Evening comes and Jesus and the disciples, they arrive at the upstairs room. 
Uh, Jewish tradition is to celebrate the Passover with what's called a Seder, a meal that commemorates the story of the Israelites' liberation from Egypt. There are many different ingredients that make up the meal, each representing something significant. There are four, four small cups of wine, each representing some part of the story. There are questions that are asked, there's blessings that are offered, and the Exodus account of God freeing Israel is shared over the course of the meal. And Christian scholars for hundreds of years have tried to map this Last Supper of Jesus on top of the Seder, theorizing about which cup represented Jesus' blood and and so on. Here's what we know for sure. It was Passover and there was a meal. That's it. It was Passover and there was a meal. See, the Seder, it actually shows up in in historical texts not until after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 CE. So the first mention of this beautiful tradition is is at least 40 years after Jesus' death. And so here in Mark's Gospel, this may have been a Seder, it may have been a Seder, but what we know for sure is that it was a meal commemorating Passover. Now in Jesus' day, meals were far more important than they are to us today. Uh, Most of the time, uh, for most of us, we treat food functionally. Uh, as something we simply need to consume to survive. But in the world of the Bible, meals had special significance. To eat with someone was to communicate acceptance of them. There were social expectations and norms that a, a person would only eat with those considered respectable by society. And that was especially true for a rabbi and for a teacher. And that's why the religious leaders were so scandalized by Jesus eating with so-called sinners, because this was considered an acceptance of their behavior, of their uncleanness, of their sin. Sharing a meal with someone communicated welcome and acceptance and intimacy and trust, which helps us better understand the gravity of what happens next. During the meal that connotes trust and intimacy and acceptance, during the meal, Jesus said, I assure you, that one of you will betray me. Someone eating with me. Deeply sad, and they asked him one by one, it's not me, is it? Jesus answered, it's, it's one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread with me into this bowl. Now, he isn't named explicitly here in this passage, but there's a reason you probably don't know very many Judases alive right now. In Mark's gospel, we have known since chapter 3, when the disciples were first called, how Judas turns out. Every time he's mentioned in scripture, it's with a shadow cast over him. Judas, who became a traitor, says Luke. Judas, who was greedy and stole from the common purse, says John. Last week, we heard about the criticisms of the woman's costly sacrifice. In John's gospel, he names, he's like, it's Judas said that. (laughs) Just so you know. But none of the disciples knew that at the time. Because Judas was also called to be one of Jesus' select few. Judas was someone who was trusted and loved by Jesus. Judas, we're told in the Gospels, Judas was in charge of the money. And you don't don't just put anybody in charge of the money. Especially if you're already suspicious of them, right? Like, let's put them in uh, in a position where they could abuse our trust. No, no. He was one of them. He was one of the brothers. Judas was there for the feeding of the 5,000. He was there for the raising of the dead. He was there for the healing of the sick. Just like Peter and the rest of the disciples, Judas was chosen by Jesus and sent out on mission for the kingdom of God. 
But his act of betrayal changed everything about the way that we look at him. Right? That's how it can be sometimes. Something goes wrong in a friendship or in a relationship or in a marriage where we discover things were not as they seemed all along and it makes you see the other person in a whole different light. It changes the way you understand and process your shared history. Maybe even your present. But at the time, no one knew it was Judas. That's why when Jesus said that one of them was going to betray him, people weren't like, that guy, right? No, everyone said, it's not me, is it? Only two knew the truth. But Jesus doesn't name him. Why not? I mean, why not point him out? The disciples, if Jesus had said, uh, yo, it's Judas, the disciples could have stopped him from doing whatever he was planning to do. Stopped him from turning Jesus over, and, and Jesus would have been spared. I mean, we know that Jesus wasn't looking forward to what was coming up. He wasn't looking forward to dying. We'll hear about it next week. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out in anguished prayer, Abba, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. Jesus had a way out. But Jesus didn't come to avoid responsibility. He didn't come to run away from the hard choices or to escape the divine work of redeeming and liberating all people and all things. That's not what love does. The key to really living is revealed in the second part of Jesus' Gethsemane prayer, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. That's our anchor verse for this section of Mark's gospel. That's how to really live. Not what I want, God, but what you want. And here in the room with his disciples, Jesus chooses the path that will save all of us. He said, the human one goes to his death just as it is written about him. That is my path. That's my road. That's my task and my mission. But how terrible it is for that person who betrays the human one. Still, doesn't name him. It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Some translations say, woe to him who betrays me. And we can read that as a proclamation of judgment, right? Cursed be the one who, who you know, who betrays me. You're going to get it. We feel that desire for, for retribution when we've been wrong, don't we? We feel that. But here, this expression of Jesus, this is, this is an expression of lament. It's an expression of grief, of sorrow. It's an alas. Scottish theologian William Barclay called this love's last appeal to Judas. Love's last appeal. It's not going to go the way you think it will. You will not find the fulfillment you think you will. You still have time. I have no doubt that if, uh, if Judas had changed his mind, God would have found some other way to rescue us all. Because that is the way of love. The verse is an interesting one, though. Because in it, we're faced with the paradox of divine sovereignty and human agency. Between what God does and what we do. Because if it's written that Jesus is going to die, well, surely that absolves Judas of guilt, right? 
God already planned it. So Judas is just playing his part. He's not to blame. He's just playing his part. He's just doing what God had already planned. But what Jesus is clearly saying is some things will happen. Some things will happen. But you still have a choice. And that choice will have consequences for good or for ill, for yourself and for others. This is the nature of love. Love always seeks the good of others and love has to be freely chosen. Love requires free will because love requires a choice in order to be true love. If you can't choose not love, you can't choose love. If you can't choose not to love, then you can't choose to love. Then it's coercion. Then it's forced. And so we human beings, we who are so loved by God and by whom God so longs to be loved in return, we have been given free will to respond how we will because in order to be free to love God in return, we also have to be free to not love God. Otherwise, it's not really love. Does that make sense? I try not to be overly philosophical about it, but this is it's such a key theological point for me and how I understand God and, 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 and human agency and, and good and evil and suffering and grace and sin, it all comes back to the God who is love and therefore has to give us the freedom to choose and has to allow us to experience the consequences of those choices for good or for ill for ourselves and for others. And when we don't, it is pure grace. And when we do, Sometimes that is grace too. There are so many things we don't have control over. How your parents treat you. How your kids respond. Somebody reciprocate, reciprocates your feelings. The numerous random occurrences that happen during your day or the numerous things that, that may be said that are hurtful or unhelpful. You can't control if your friends will come through on what they say they would. You can't control if someone who is hurting and acting out of their past traumas will open up a new wound for you. You can't control it. We can't even control our feelings most of the time or how our bodies react to perceived danger. But we can control what we do with those feelings, how we respond to those situations. We can't control what we say and how we say it. You always have some choice. And that choice will have consequences for good or for ill, for ourselves and for others. Jesus was being betrayed by one of his closest friends. But, you know, we're not going to let the other, the other disciples off the hook. They weren't exactly models of steadfastness and courage either. In fact, right after today's passage, Jesus says to everyone else, you will all falter in your faithfulness to me. And this is where Peter is like, never. I will never betray you. Not even if I die, I won't deny you. And the text says, and they all said the same thing. So, we, you know, Peter gets blasted, but everybody said it. <laughs> the spoiler alert is they would all deny Jesus and abandon him. Jesus was about to experience the emotional trauma of being abandoned by 
and betrayed by his closest friends. He was about to experience the physical trauma of being tortured and executed by the state. He was about to experience the spiritual trauma of taking the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders and feeling the separation from God, the abandonment, feeling abandoned by God, the one with whom he had been at one since before there was time. I would not blame Jesus for looking for a way out. I mean, anytime there's conflict, I'm inclined to numb out. And that might be through, you know, fast food or video games and sometimes through older addictions that look real tempting. But this is what Jesus chose. This is what love looks like. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks and gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it in a new way in God's kingdom. Some call this practice the Lord's Supper. Others call it the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek meaning having given thanks, as Jesus does. So this is a meal of gratitude we partake in. Most often in our context, we call it communion, from the Latin meaning a coming together, a unity, as we believe God does with these, as we meet God in these gifts of graces, as we see how God reestablished communion with us through Jesus. It also means in common, shared by all or shared by many, because we eat and drink together. Now Mark isn't instituting the practice of communion or even explaining it as, as the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians. Instead, Mark is showing us what Jesus does in an instance when many of us might have chosen something different and would have understood if he had. In between predicting his friend's betrayal and experiencing it, he has a meal with them. Judas, who sells him for 30 pieces of silver, even after love's last appeal. Peter, who denies him not once, but three times. James and John, who fall asleep instead of praying with him. All the rest who run away. Jesus knows what they will choose. Jesus knows what they will choose. He knows they will choose their own wills over God's, that they will choose self-preservation over sacrifice and courage, and he still chooses to eat with them. He still says, I trust you. I love you. I accept you. Jesus shares a Passover meal with his chosen family. More than that, Jesus shares a covenant meal, a renewal and a reminder of God's ancient promise to bless, and in so doing, he also points to the kingdom feast that awaits. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the day of the Lord, the day when God would come and finally and fully make everything right. And this is what he says in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of heavenly forces will prepare for all peoples a rich feast, a feast of choice wines, of select foods, rich in flavor, of choice wines, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the veil that is veiling all peoples, the shroud and shrouding all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
The Lord will wipe tears from every face. He will remove his people's disgrace, their shame from off of the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken and they will say on that day, look, this is our God for whom we have waited and he has saved us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let's be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is what God longs to bring about. This is what God is bringing about. The metaphor is a feast, a kingdom feast. In theological circles, it's known as the Messianic Banquet, the party hosted by the Messiah. We talk about the flourishing of God's kingdom here, and by that we mean where every life and every sphere of life is thriving and whole because God is in charge there. And according to the Bible, this vision of the kingdom feast is where we're headed. Now, many of us don't really understand the cultural concept of feasting. I think it may be because we, we eat too much most of the time here in, in, in America. But in the Middle East in the first century, as it is in much of the world, most people live day to day, scrambling to get their daily bread. That's why they prayed for it. Maybe not even that. The image of a divine feast where food and drink are abundant and bountiful and, and quality would be such a glorious thing to look forward to, right? Such a sign of God's provision, God's blessing, such a vision of hope. And so maybe in our current context, where we look around and we see gun violence and we see global conflict, maybe there that might be a vision of weapons of war and destruction and death being beaten into tools that bring life. That's in the prophet Micah. Maybe in our context of racial injustice, it might be a vision of people of all kinds in a just and righteous and holy peace with one another, restored and reconciled and worshiping the same Lord Jesus. That's in Revelation. Maybe in our context of busyness and stress and anxiety and fear, it might be a vision of rest and peace and refreshment. That's in the Psalms. The last meal Jesus shared with his disciples looked back at Passover, at God's liberating action in history, and it looked forward to the kingdom feast, God's final and full liberating action in all, at the end of all of time. And every time we partake of communion, we mark God's liberating action through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. A gift to be received, not earned. In spite of us, not because of us. Communion is an invitation to life and love, to really live by really loving. Communion is an invitation to the way of Christ in whom all things hold together. Communion is an invitation to the family meal. Whatever has happened, whatever will happen, hear this then. Whatever you came in here carrying, whatever weight, Whatever fears and anxieties, addictions or sins, whatever hopes and dreams, celebrations and triumphs, you have the freedom to choose love or not love. There will be times you will fall short. There will be times when you choose self-preservation over sacrifice and courage, when you numb out rather than stepping up. There will be times when you, you will make a promise to God and, and then turn around and act as if you never had. 
There will be times when you fail to act as one made in the image of God, made to be like God in love. And there will be times when you fail to treat others as those made in the image of God with the worth and dignity of God. There will be times. And there is love in the face of it all. There is grace in the face of it all, no matter who you are or where you call home. No matter what you've done or what you've had done to you, no matter what you're hiding or holding back in shame for fear of being exposed or let down or hurt again, the invitation of Jesus still remains. You can still come and join the party. Join the family. Join the mission. Come be free. Come belong. Come make room for others. I hope you choose to say yes. Would you pray with me? God, we bring all of ourselves, the parts that want to be here and the parts that don't want to be here, but we are here, and, and God, uh, we are watching and listening. And God, I don't believe it's a mistake, but that you wanted us to hear, wanted us here to, to hear something or to see something or to experience something or to, to say something to someone else. And God, I know you, you know the depths of our hearts. You know all of the things that we're carrying. You know the things that we, we carry in hope, and you know the things that we carry in shame. And you came to, to bring us liberation, to free us, to deliver us, to rescue us, to save us. Not just in some future moment, but in the here and now and, and lasting into eternity. And so we pray for that. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to us, would speak to us, would comfort us, would challenge us. Whatever it is that you know we need. Would we be present to you? Would we hear you? Would we be attentive to you? Would we be responsive to you? We pray these things all in the name of Jesus who was responsive and obedient to you even to the point of death and resurrection. In his name, amen.